Welcome again to the Lions of Liberty podcast. That's right, we made it to a second episode, and they said it wouldn't last. I don't know who they are, but they they said it. Um, As always, I am your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Now, if you're familiar with our website, which which I hope you are by now, if not, go check it out, lionsofliberty.com you will know that we place a strong emphasis on ideas. Our mission statement is to advance the ideas of liberty. And, you know, we we always talk about ideas, philosophy, because it's important to have a strong philosophical basis for the positions we take. And that is exactly what we're going to talk about on this edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. My guest here today is most recently the author of Reason and Liberty, he is also the author of a book called Four Individual Rights, and he has a blog of the same name, which you can find at fourindividualrights.com. Shane Whistler, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Now, uh, before we get into the content of your book, the concepts that, that you're laying out for everybody, I'm just curious, how did you get into all this liberty stuff? Did you just wake up one day and... and know everything or know that you are need to be a reasonable person and use your reason to understand liberty or was there some kind of event like a, a world event or um on something you read that kind of got you started on this path um probably i, I don't know something i mean i have a story from when i was like five years old and they they came to me and they noticed i was using either hand with to write with and i was just just naturally just ambi- or, uh, ambidextrous and uh, they they said, well, you have to pick one hand, and uh, they and so they said everybody else is using their right hand, and so I decided I'd use my left hand. So I, you know, there's something I think there was something early on where I just kind of want to do things my own way. Um, I could have picked both hands, but um, but then you know, as I grew up, I bumped into Ayn Rand, and and she she brought a kind of forceful clarity, you know, that a lot of people experience. So uh, Ayn Rand was really the first that got me, you know, more firmly, explicitly, you know, into individual liberty. Uh, that's kind of a basic story, I guess. Gotcha. And, and then uh, well, eventually I shift, you know, started thinking through and, coming around to some my own ideas and stuff. So. Right, because, I mean, Ayn Rand is, is a very... It's funny, because even with the, among libertarians, I find Ayn Rand to be a very divisive figure. There are libertarians that absolutely hate Ayn Rand. There are libertarians that just worship her. There, there's kind of all across the board. Even even outside of libertarianism, you see that, but it, it seems, as as all these debates kind of do, that libertarians have, they she's even more divisive amongst kind of our own, you might say. Well, I, yeah, I think you need to... Be careful and serious when you when you look at her. I mean, she has she has a lot of good things she says, and I think she has areas where you could criticize her. And I think it's it's just a huge mistake to just you know get mad and throw everything out that she did just because she was wrong on some things. Um, so I don't I don't have a whole lot of sympathy if somebody just hates Ayn Rand. I mean, if that's all if that's their only viewpoint of her, because she, she did really did a lot of good things. And and I do have to say, I think it is absolutely legitimate to hate the movie Atlas Shrugged because <laughs> if anyone's seen that, it is just it is just awful. So please, if you haven't read Ayn Rand yet, read the book, read Atlas Shrugged, read Fountainhead, read some of her her lesser known work. Work don't don't look at the movie. <laughs> I mean, you can say that for any philosopher. I mean, like I've read, you know, like Bertrand Russell, for example, 
he has a number of things that he says that I really don't agree with, but he has a lot of things he says that I really, you know, love the way he puts it and it's really good. So, I mean, I think, I think you have to approach, you know, philosophers with a kind of charitable type, you know, attitude and just take what you can that's good. You know, you don't have to take everything. And that kind of ties into your entire approach that you take with the philosophy and what you discuss in your book. You discuss kind of concepts that a lot of people might not necessarily be familiar with, um, things like metaphysics, metaethics, kind of high-level concepts, which in, in essence are very simple, but in, in a way they're abstract. They're not the kind of thing that people just think about every day. And in that book, you, in Reason and Liberty, you break down how people sense things, how we come to use our reason to understand the truth of the world. I don't know, why do you, before we really describe these concepts a little more, why do you think that just on a very basic level, understanding these ideals and understanding how we get to reason is uh, essential to understanding the ideas of liberty? Well, that, that's a really big question. I think it's a very important question. It is. Well, give me, give me your elevator speech. Say you just, you got right. 90 seconds in an elevator. You got to convince them, hey, if nothing else, you need to read my book to check out right. these ideas. Well, I think, I think personally that nothing is more important uh, to the liberty movement than philosophy. And I think, I mean, I, I think that if you took all libertarians and you actually gave them political power, I think what would happen right immediately after that is they would start fighting in exactly the same way that everyone's already fighting, like Democrats and Republicans fight. Because actually, when you look at it, they don't really agree. They're only, they only seem to agree because they don't have the power to implement their plans, and so they don't notice how they would be mad at each other. And the the only way that you can uh, you know resolve uh, you know these political differences is to say, well, why is this true, or why is this not true? And if you keep asking reasons why, uh, if you take any statement and somebody says, well, this statement's true, and you ask why is that true, then they'll give you some other statements. And if you say, well, why are those true? Then it'll give you some other statements. And if you keep doing that, eventually you will land in the philosophical realm. And so all differences of opinion uh, ultimately root in the philosophical realm. And so if you really want to have peace, you know, between people who can agree, yeah, I shouldn't do this, but I should be able to do that. If you really want to have a peace, you have to resolve the philosophical disputes. Yeah, that, that ties into a criticism that I hear often, you know, it's like a criticism of libertarians. Why are you guys always uh, arguing? Why are you guys always discussing this and that? And, you know, why why do you have this website where all you do is discuss ideas? And it's like, hey, you know, you guys already agree that marijuana should be legal. And, you know, you're, you're against this war. You know, why don't you just come together and, and you know, join a political party or something and, and shut up about all this other stuff? So, you know, and I think that that comes back to that reason, because if we don't, have some kind of solid foundation and understand the reasons behind why we agree or disagree on things, then, you know, when, when that kind time comes to either implement a political philosophy or apply ideas in other areas that we might not have discussed as much, you know, then it's just chaos. It's, we were just throwing darts at, at what we, you know, whatever we, whatever it landed on, as long as we liked it, we were going with it. So, you know, that's why I think that it's important that we have books like yours, you know, websites like mine, um, and all the voices out there that are giving legitimate, honest, open discussion to ideas, because if we don't do that, then, you know, what are we even doing here? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, if you, in our universe, if you take 
take anything, you know, any object in the universe, uh, you look at it, it's that object produces many multifaceted effects. You know, even a, ro a rock that's sitting there, uh, it's going to produce some small effect of gravity. It has a certain color. Things bounce off it a certain way. Sound waves bounce off it a certain way. Um, and, and you could just keep multiplying all the ways in which just a rock, you know, impacts on the surrounding environment. And, and I think ideas are the same way. So as, if you have a basic philosophical idea, it's not just going to lead to a certain simple set of consequences. It's going to lead to many different consequences. And so those many different consequences are different beliefs in your, in your mind. And just because somebody agrees with you on marijuana, if they don't agree with you for the right reasons, then I think those, the wrong reasons they have in their mind are going to lead to other things you are going to disagree with, are going to fight about. And so again, I think it's important to really strive to try to get to these, you know, basic reasons so that we can really, you know, have an authentic, peaceful human society at some point so that, you know, we all agree that, you know, you should have a right to do these things and, and that these things you shouldn't. Right. It's what, uh, I believe Bastiat referred to it as the seen and the unseen. Everything, every policy that's implemented, everything has a beneficial effect for somebody. But there's also always consequences, unintended consequences. So if we don't have some kind of philosophical basis or, or of deciding upon things, then those unintended consequences are bound to just, you know, extrapolate and, and keep happening in, in, in greater extent. Right. Um, now you touch on the idea of meaning in your book and how we all use different words to describe things. Now, there's some words that we all agree on, like a rock. We all pretty much have an idea. We've all seen a rock. We all understand what you mean when you say a rock and I say a rock. And, you know, you talk about how we work to refine our meanings and using our reason. Like, you use the word liberty in your book. And I use the word liberty and libertarian. These are just, you know, words we're using. But if people don't understand what we mean when we say those words, then, you know, was it, what does it even matter? So, I mean, on the most basic sense, when you use the word liberty, what does that mean? Liberty in the most basic, in a kind of metaphysical sense, I mean your biological activity as an organism. So anything that you do in, you know, breathing or acting, obtaining food, living your life, basically, to me, liberty equals life. So, uh, you know, so long as it doesn't infringe on somebody else's life, obviously. Uh, but liberty is just the exercise of your natural powers throughout the world. It's, it's nothing less, nothing more than your life. Will you go back and just give a basic, like, describe kind of what, um, what you mean when you say metaphysics and metaethics and how that ties into reason it, it, for somebody that's never heard that concept before at all? Okay, Metaph metaphysics, uh, I use it in a, in a somewhat different sense than most the average philosopher, but I use it the same way Aristotle does, and all, all Aristotle meant was first philosophy. And what that means is if you keep asking for reasons why something is true, um, eventually you run out of reasons why and you get to something that's self-evident, starting point, and that you can't get, you can't get any deeper than that, you're done. And so uh, that's all metaphysics means to me is basically as deep as you can go in asking for reasons why 
you believe something. Um, and then I think if you go, it doesn't matter what subject you start in. Uh, if you start in electrical engineering or you start in, you know, building architecture or whatever, it doesn't matter what you start in. If you ask enough reasons, well, why is this the way to do this? Or why is this true? Uh, then eventually you land in metaphysical questions. You'll just naturally land there. Um, now, meta-ethics is the same uh, type of uh, question, except, you know, in an ethical realm. So if you say, why is this good, why is this bad? Um, it's basically the, the final stopping point where you can't ask any deeper questions. You're at the very starting point for the whole field. And we need that basis, those questions and, you know, the, those answers to get to our reason so we can start kind of thinking things through and starting to come to these concepts. It's like a two-year-old or four, maybe a four-year-old, this kids start asking why. And that's really what it is to be, you know, part of what it is to be a human being is we ask for reasons. We want to know why. Little kids want to know why. And then the adults beat it out of them because they say, because I said so, right? And, uh, and so I'm saying you know, our humanity is in the questioning of why is this true? And so, and what I'm saying is you take that very human perspective and you ask why you end up landing, you keep asking why you end up landing in these basic starting points. And it's important to ask why, because uh, that's the only way that you can, it, only if you ask why and only if you're honestly pursuing reasons why, can you have any confidence that what you believe is actually true or right. So, you know, are you doing the right thing? Are you treating a person? Are you respecting their rights? Uh, you know, there's many questions. Are you building a bridge the right way? I mean, there's many, many areas where if you really want to validate, you know, that you're doing the right thing, you need to ask why. And especially for libertarians, which I'd say, despite the fact that you know, there's obviously a burgeoning liberty movement, not only in this country, but in the world, we're still, I think, to agree, a very minority um, philosophy. And, um, you know, if we don't have the answers or, or have these answers to those questions, why? If we don't keep asking why, bringing up these questions, why? Having the answers to why, then, you know, how are we ever going to advance a philosophy in the first place? How are, We don't even have one if we're not doing that. Right, yeah. I mean, you can't... You, you, it's kind of hypocritical because you're, you're basically telling them they're wrong and, and, yeah, if you can't tell them why they're wrong... Then you're, that, just the, you're just the parent saying, because I said so. I'm a libertarian. I said so. Right. Why, why should they listen to you? I say they shouldn't. I mean, I would say, in fact, I'd say it's better they didn't because if you say that you stand for liberty, but your idea of liberty doesn't stand up to rational scrutiny, okay, you have this label printed on your forehead, Lib I stand for liberty, and then if somebody goes and implements your bad ideas of liberty, then in the, then, and then it doesn't work and everything doesn't get screwed up. Now, the word liberty gets associated with nonsense, and it gets associated with failure. And so we really don't want somebody who's really successful at, you know, spreading the word liberty around without having the substance of liberty that actually matches the word. And the only way you have the substance match is that you, it stands up to, to severe rational scrutiny. And that's we want to avoid a situation where you get the uh, 
Hey, I told you so. I told you libertarian stuff is stupid. Look what this politician did. He's he said he's a libertarian and he, and he implemented policy X and you know look what happened and so that's why we need to make sure we're letting people know it when when there's maybe politicians or even other libertarian figures that we don't agree with what they're saying or we don't think that that represents libertarianism. Not only is it legitimate to criticize that or question it or go back to that question, why does this position is this position libertarian? Why? You know, if we don't do that, then suddenly, you know, what are we even saying? Liberty loses its meaning. Libertarian loses its meaning. And we get left with nothing. Yeah. So how do we get, you know, how do we get from here to there? How do we get to a point where we convince people to use reason or to even understand what reason is? Obviously, one answer is to go read Reason and Liberty. And so hopefully some people listening will do that. But, you know, how, how do we kind of, you know, we're only here for a limited time, you and I, on this planet, you know, unless we get into, you know, bigger stuff about multiple lives and all that. But in our time that we have on this earth, what do you think is the best way for us to convince people to use their reason to question things and then to kind of get themselves guiding? Because I think that's the main point of your book is that people can't just, you can't just write a book saying, here's the seven planks of liberty and this is what you should believe it, people need to come to it on their own they can have influence they can have influence from other philosophers and, and people like that but ultimately they need to get there because their reason brought them there because it makes sense so how do we how do we get more people to do that well i think i think your question boils down to how do we get people to be more rational and because i think a, a rational person is going to embrace liberty, and I, and I mean that in a in a deep way. And I think if you read my book, you'll you'll see what I mean by rational. But uh, the the thing is, I think most people uh, are they'll tend to just kind of follow what the crowd is doing, right? So, and there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can do about those people. But there are more rare types of people out there that that can see. You know, they can see, even though it goes against what everyone around them is saying, they can still see and they can still stand for the truth. And I think in, until you need to get, you know, this, this person who's actually very sincere, very rational, disciplined person, you know, these kind of people need to come together and they need to lead the way because the, the next type of person will not is not open to, or maybe they're afraid of following a rational argument to its conclusion. I, I don't know all the reasons, but, but, but there is a, there's a difference. So then you need to set an example and you need to, I think, I think we need a movement that actually is, is being very serious about philosophy. Uh, and this has happened before. Uh, it happened with objectivism. If you look at Ayn Rand and objectivism, um, they actually, if you go look at back at the actual documents that they were writing and the things that they were doing, uh, it is a very serious, very scholarly, very rigorous, uh, trying to say, well, what is the truth in this psychology area? You know, what's the truth about, you know, what's a good argument regarding, you know, whether God exists? And they were going through this whole gamut and they were very, very serious. Unfortunately, I think they had some authoritarianism in there. So you know, I was like, you know, do it because I said so, or don't ask why. And they had that in there, and and it doesn't mix very well with the philosophy of reason. You know, authoritarianism and reason are like you know oil and water. So uh, I think it just caused it to just blow the smithereens. Um, 
And I really think that we need to to have a more disciplined approach like they were trying to do and revive that sort of thing. And I don't see, I really don't see, personally, I don't see uh, a more superficial kind of liberty that's like appeal to the masses and water it down. I don't see that working myself. And, I, and I'm against, I'm kind of like opposed to the status quo in libertarianism on that because I don't think, I think they think that uh, you don't need to be that serious or rigorous about philosophy. Um, you can just come at it whichever way you want. And as long as you agree with these 10 things, like you're saying, then you're a libertarian. Uh, I don't think that's good enough. Uh, I think you need this really deep, serious rigor and you need to fight about these fundamental things and say, well, which one is correct, which one's not. Right, and, I, and I'm always happy to find someone that agrees with me on something and say, great, glad you agree with me on that, and welcome into, into my fold. But when that happens, I'm going to kind of, I'm still going to start going in and asking them why they, why they agree with me and then get, try to get to that fundamental reason and try to get to, try to convince them that maybe if they don't think throwing someone in jail for, say, marijuana is a good idea, I'll find out why. Is it because they necessarily think marijuana itself isn't that bad and that's why? Or is it because they really believe an individual should have the right to make decisions for themselves about what they put into their body? Or whether that's good or bad. So, you know, a good test is, okay, so would heroin and cocaine be legal too? And a lot of times those same people that are for legal marijuana would say no. And that's when I go, okay, that's when you realize maybe we don't have a philosophical agreement. You just think marijuana is not that bad. And I'm just using this right. the drug thing as one of many, many, many and, possible examples. And, and I think it's really good that we have movements that try to legalize marijuana all by itself. And I'm not, I'm not against that. Even if people don't really get the whole reason why it should be, uh, legalized, you know, I think it's good that they have these special interest focus, you know, uh, I don't know what the word exactly for them is, but they, they're like a narrow focus, like, you know, like, uh, NRA, for example, I'm not endorsing the NRA, but I mean, you know, a, a pro gun rights, pro second amendment or pro, you know, marijuana or marijuana legalization. These are really good groups to have, and you know, I fully endorse, even if they're not philosophically fully consistent, it's okay. But what I'm saying is that if we really want libertarianism as an idea, you know, liberty as an idea to, to prevail, then we also need, in addition to these, you know, little focused areas trying to like, essentially those are, it's kind of like they're doing emergency response work to really big problems that are going on, and that's good. But in addition to that, we do need a philosophical, you know, uh, something that can change the culture so they actually deeply understand, so that people deeply understand liberty and what it really is at the heart. Uh, we need that too, in addition, you know, to these other things. So I'm not against, you know, rallying with these, these, uh, these special purpose groups, but I'm, I'm, I'm for creating or, you know, getting together and, and creating a more philosophically, you know, serious sort of activity to really nail down and try to nail down uh, concepts of liberty. And if my book's not, my book is just my take on it, and I, I try to do that. And 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 if it's wrong, that's that's fine, you know. But you know, we need to do something like that, whether it's mine or somebody else does something better, and we we need to you know fight about these things and get down to. So that we can have a little, you know, a handbook, a philosophical handbook of liberty that, you know, uh, is the truth. 
What do you think about politics as a method for achieving liberty? There's another, this is kind of another one of those areas where there's a big divide upon with libertarians. There are some that are deeply involved in politics, think that, you know, spend all their time just focusing on which politicians we got to get elected. These guys take the right positions. These guys have the right ideas. And then there's the other extreme where people say, screw politics. It's bad. It's just all bad. Every single one of them is bad. Voting's terrible. And, you know, we should have nothing to do with it. So where do you fall in that spectrum? Well, I think there's this uh, Greek character called Sisyphus who was punished. uh, uh, I can't remember why he was punished, but his punishment was that he had to keep rolling this rock up the hill and then it roll back down and you have to go back and roll it back up the hill. Uh, and politics without philosophy is like that. I think, you know, you, you're just, you're just rolling the rock up the hill. Uh, it's, I, I think politics can be, can be okay. So long as there's a fundamental philosophical activity behind it so that, you know, so you're not doing that. So I, I, I'm not opposed to politics at all or getting involved in politics. It's just got to be viewed as a kind of a emergency sort of thing uh, while you're trying to actually get the foundations for liberty in place. But it's not a foundational thing, so that makes sense. Yeah, I, th- so that, I'm interested in one of the concepts that you discuss or you, you briefly touch upon in your, in your book is uh, Machiavellian subversion. And as one of the methods that are, are, are possible to use, and, and your other one being just truthful, you know, enunciation of everything you believe. And could, could you describe that to our listeners for people that maybe not aren't familiar at all with Machiavelli or, you know, how, how you see that applying in, in our specific kind of push towards a more, a more libertarian or liberty filled world? Well, Machiavelli wrote uh, The Prince and some people think that he wrote it as a parody, like he didn't really mean it. Uh, and some people think he meant it seriously. And, and I actually don't, I, I kind of tend to think that he was a parody. Um, but, uh, in any case, when you read it, the kinds of things he advocated is, you know, doing just really nefarious things to get your way. Uh, just basically tricking people. Um, you should go look at the book if you want, but the word Machiavellian refers to, you know, kind of being duplicitous and, 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 and just, you know, behind your back doing things just to manipulate people or, you know, getting on TV and saying things that, you know, people are going to like to hear, uh, but not really telling them the whole truth, you know, just because you think they're stupid and they're not going to get it the whole truth or maybe they're not ready for the truth. Uh, you know, so you don't want to offend people. Um, and, and I think, and, and, and I, you know, coming out, like, for example, in libertarianism, I have a lot of ideas where, I don't really agree with the libertarians, uh, general, I mean, the, the statistical libertarian average on, on a number of things. And I also know it's very unpopular to say so. Okay. But I still say so anyway, uh, because I think it's important that we not be like cultists and just go along with the, the crowd of libertarians just because they're all going in a certain direction. You know, we shouldn't go that way. And I think some people, pursue libertarianism in this kind of political Machiavellian kind of way where they, they say things that they think are going to go over well, and then they bite their tongue about things they don't think. And so you don't really know what the person thinks, actually. You only know that, you know, 
they're, they're saying things that people like to hear or certain people like to hear. Uh, and so to me, Machiavellian is you're hiding your true self and your true ideas and your true thinking, you know, from others. And I think part of this also comes about from just intimidation. I think people are afraid, you know, to say things because they don't want to be made fun of. You know, they don't want to be mocked. You know, they don't want, you know, I get mocked for my views. You know, a, a number, you know, there's a number of my views I just get made fun of. And, you know, it's not fun to be made fun of. You know, nobody likes it. But uh, if that's what you think, that's what you think. And I think you, you people should come out of the closet and they should just express their t- true beliefs. They should be sincere and they should be rational. They should be ready to change their mind, but they shouldn't hide anything. And I think unless we have a serious, we stop being so political and stop trying to game people and pretend, you know, hide certain things because they're not ready yet or whatever, treat them like little children. Uh, I think we should just you know, completely come out of the closet and, and say what we think and, and, you know, be sincere and be complete. And, and try to engage and try to change things. Cause I think if you're, if you're manipulating people, uh, I think it will never work. I think they, that some level, on some level, if you're trying to just, you know, manipulate, people will know that you're doing that. Just like children know you're doing it and they figure it out. So does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I read that part of your book, the first thing that came to my mind immediately was Rand Paul. Because that, yeah. that's kind of how I view Rand Paul. I, and I'm sure, you, you know, it, obviously he takes a lot of positions I agree with and, you know, says a lot of a lot of good things. And then, but then he always does that kind of thing you just described, the, the biting your tongue, the kind of, okay, but then I'm going to kind of fit in this establishment line of thought just to not really scare people too much. Like, what, what do you think? Do you think that applies to him at all? Or what do you think of politicians like him, like Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, these guys that are becoming more prominent? Do you think that they fit that? that subversion model at all? Do you think that's what they're doing or do you think it's even, you know, more, more duplicitous than that? Um, I haven't followed Cruz very much, but uh, Rand Paul, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is I don't, I have no idea if he even believes anything libertarian, but I, I, I kind of think you can't be elected by doing what I'm saying. You can't be elected that way. So now maybe you will be one of these days. And, and, and the more, I think the more we make it as, as a grassroots, the more we make it a normal thing to be, uh, you know, true, you know, state your true opinions, the more that likely that a politician will be able to actually, you know, arise that who, who, when he says something, you can, you know, you can know that he means what he says. So yeah, definitely not any politician I, I would say is, is is doing that, and I think many libertarians are not doing that either. Now I just want to go through a couple a couple little points in your book that I want to point out and just discuss real quick. Uh, one of them, this is actually my probably my favorite quote of the whole book, but I am gonna just point out a minor criticism with it. But it's actually, despite my criticism. It's my favorite quote in the book. So um, the quote is, it is no more normal for things like cruelty, tyranny, war, injustice, disease, scarcity, starvation, and thuggery to prevail in any area of the globe than it is normal for a husband to daily beat his wife and children. And, you know, that, and that's how I feel when, when people say, well, you know, wh- why do you care about this? Why do you do this? You know, this is just the way things are. That we have this government. This is we have the United States. The world is laid out the way it is. 
You know, it is what it is. This is normal. And all I can think is, this stuff's not normal. You know, society kind of <laughs> has evolved over the years, and we've evolved, I think we agree, because people don't have the right philosophy, and they don't use the reason to get there. And, but... So I really love that that sentence, first of all. But my only minor critique of it, and this is a concept we've kind of touched on before, is when you include the word scarcity in there. You say scarcity is not normal. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, that specific word, why do you think scarcity is not normal? Because from, from my perspective, I mean, scarcity is normal. It's, it's, it's something that we may have less or more of in a certain area as technology improves. But, you know, we do live in a world with scarce resources. Not everything's abundant, obviously, because if things weren't scarce, I would have everything. I would already have everything I need. I wouldn't need to do anything. So I just want to touch on that, uh, why you think that the concept of scarcity is not normal. Well, first, let me just say that I think that, generally speaking, that you, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy to you know, the, the expectations you carry around in your head. And if you, if, if you expect that, oh, it's just normal that, you know, women are raped and that robberies and the governments do all these things. If you expect that it's just normal, uh, then you don't tend to get too angry about it. Cause it's like, well, yeah, that's what happens. And so you're not going to try to change it. And so I think many people carry around these kind of pragmatic, non, you know, uh, pragmatic expectations instead of idealistic. What are the possibilities really to humanity, you know, in their head? And so they're not living in the way the world can be and should be. They're just completely fixated on the way it is. And some, I've had somebody take exception to that quote because I use the word normal (laughs) and, and they, they said, well, look around you, it is normal. That's what happens. Um, it shouldn't be normal. Um, now, and that's what changes it is when everybody agrees that it's not normal and that it should be different, that's when it changes. But when everybody thinks, oh, that's just the way it is, even if you don't like it, it's going to stay normal because you're not going to do anything. But as, as far as the scarcity goes, um, you know, I'll, I'll just say, uh, you know, may, hopefully this isn't too silly, but, you know, I believe in Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek universe. You know, I, I am an engineer. Uh, I really love science. Uh, I look out at the universe and I see how rich it is and how filled with materials it is. And I see, you know, computers and how we can write software to, to, to automate various things and how we can build robots that can do various automated things. And I look at how we've only scratched the surface of, of the earth in terms of the, the abundance. And yes, there's areas where like, we're doing things the wrong way, and so we're running out of things. Um, like the ocean, you know, the, the fish in the ocean, it, it actually is concerning. It's very concerning. But there are technological solutions to, to those problems. And so, no, I believe in prosperity. I believe in abundance. I don't believe in scarcity. Scarcity is a temporary uh, situation or it's an artificial situation brought about by government interference. And if you tell people and you teach people that scarcity is normal, then what you're doing is you're blunting a proper emotional reaction to say, this isn't normal. This needs to be fixed. And so then people get apathetic. You know, they don't get as angry as they should get, and they just put up with it. Okay? And so I think scarcity is a really 
horrible concept. And, you know, the fact that some libertarians think that the word scarcity is a good word to use there, I just think that's totally reprehensible. Well, I don't know if it's a good word, but to me, it's at least when I'm discussing scarcity, I'm kind of looking at it in the, in the economic view, which describes kind of why we have any sort of conflict over resources or why we even make exchanges. You know, why do I work to get dollars to go buy food? Because I don't have food. It's not abundant. It might be abundant in the sense that there's a lot of it. People, humanity produces a lot of it, but not everybody has... And maybe we're just looking at it in different ways, but not not everybody has everything in the world. I mean, that's just uh, we well. Have, that's just we that. there's actually two things about the word scarcity. There's two concepts in there. One concept is just simply the law of identity. Okay, a thing is what it is. If you go to Wikipedia, you look up the law of identity, and you'll, you'll you know you'll see you'll see what I'm saying. But it's basically a thing is what it is, and it's not every other thing. It's just this one thing. Now that's just the philosophical principle, law of identity. And when libertarian, the only credible thing about the scarcity concept is just the law of identity. Okay. That's the only thing about it that has any merit whatsoever. But the other thing about scarcity, go look it up in the dictionary. It means things are running out. It means we're starving. It means there's not enough water. It means all, that's what it connotes. Okay. So it is, Yes, the law of identity is somewhat part of that, and it's and of course the law of identity is correct. I mean, if you make if you buy a bicycle, that's your bicycle, and there's no other bicycle. I mean, it's not like it's a you know an idea that can spread everywhere. It's a it's a fixed thing, and that's just the law of identity. That's all that is. Scarcity means your bicycle is rare. That it's hard to make bicycles. That there, there aren't enough bicycles to go around. That's what it connotes. So I really disagree with the connotation. I don't, I don't have a problem with the law of identity. Obviously a thing is what it is. The thing is, you know, the veneer of, uh, you know, respectability of this concept is all coming from the law of identity. So how about we just use law of identity? You know, if we want to talk about the fact that the thing is what it is, Instead of bringing in this, you know, evil connotation that we should put up with, you know, artificial, you know, uh, reductions in prosperity, which is what I think it's doing. I want to move on to another quote from your book that I think uh, a lot of libertarians will find interesting. Interesting. Oh, wow. I can't say interesting today. Uh, the most striking thing about land rights is the phenomenon of government which organically emerges out of the natural exercise of land rights. Now, I think, you know, it, there's, you know, there's a broad range of libertarians. There's libertarians that believe in zero government. I know you're not one of them. There's libertarians that still believe in like a pretty big government. So, but um, I, I think there's a lot of libertarians that just believe that government does nothing but create, arbitrarily create its own land rights, intrude on the land rights of others. Now, how, how do you see government as it, you know, organically emerges in sort of the city-state way that you discuss in your book? Well, you know, first of all, I'd say, you know, the, the word government, it, it means, when I use that word, it means what I mean by it. And then when the, when the anarchists use it, they're going to mean something quite different from what I mean by it. Uh, and so, you know, the first thing to do is to say, well, I know he uses government probably in a different way. Let's put the, the difference in opinion as to whether we should attach this label or that label. Let's put that difference aside and let's see what he's, what, what is he getting at here? And, and so what am I getting at is that, you know, property rights 
all property rights, what it means is that you get to determine what happens with that property. And, and so when it comes to your land, I mean, if you properly acquire land and there's, there's such a thing as not properly acquiring it, like just pointing and claiming you own the whole continent, that's not a way of cl- properly getting land. Uh, the way of property getting, properly getting land is that you're doing something with it. Okay. You're using it and nobody else was using it before. And so <clears throat> if you, if it's your property, it's your land then you get to say, you get to stipulate what are the rules for use of this land. And so if you start saying, well, these are the rules on my land, and so if you're on my property, you got to follow my rules, then I'm calling that a microcosm of government because you're, you are determining in this jurisdiction of your land, you are determining what the rules. And, and I'm saying uh, the, the city-state idea, I'm saying that it is, it is uh, logically possible that different people can come together who have adjoining uh, land, and they can all say, you know what, there's certain things we agree with in common, and it's easier to implement our rules if we just get together and say, well, no murder, no stealing, uh, we're going to all pay a little fee to, to get up a security service because we don't all do this all ourselves. And so they can form a jurisdiction that is a combination of all their property. And so... You know, and some people would say, oh, well, that's not government. Whatever. I mean, you don't want to call it government. That's a different argument. Right. That gets back to our meaning. Maybe you mean one thing by government. And, you know, a lot of libertarians, when they hear government, they immediately picture coercion and the guys with the guns and the forced taxation and all that. And I think the concept you're putting forward is... Okay, well, maybe our, those different governments are our meaning. We can we can work on the meaning of the the words, but um, the concept itself. You're just really talking about voluntary landowners joining with other voluntary landowners to create, you know, a, a kind of a contiguous land where they share, you know, they share security and share that kind of thing. Right, local, and then the other type. There's actually two types of governments in my system. There's a local government which we just talked about, and then there's what I call natural law government. And what that is is you know, if somebody is not on your property and they're outside your property and you see that they are raping somebody else, you have a right to go defend uh, the other uh, person from, from the rape or whatever it is if it's a crime against their natural rights. Okay, so you have a right to, in effect, you're creating a jurisdiction that goes beyond your land and you're saying that outside my land I am also going to set up rules and what I'm saying is the only rules you can set up are natural rights rules, but you can do it, okay? And so, therefore, if you can do it, you can also join with other people and do it, and so you can create a jurisdiction uh, that says, well, hey, no natural rights violations outside of our land either. Uh, and so that's just freedom of association, freedom of, you know, getting together and doing this, and you can't, you, there's no way to really argue against being able to do that. Do you think that concept can lead to kind of a slippery slope? Whereas, you know, the the United States government started with, well, originally it just started with some colonists coming over and finding land and settling on it. And then they started forming their local, you know, local governments. Then they formed their colonies. And then those colonies started the Articles of Confederation. And then they, you know, then the Constitution. And it just kept growing and growing to where we are today. So do you think that that, I'm sure you've heard this criticism that you know what you're describing will just 
as, as well-intentioned as it is, will just lead to this massive government that goes around justifying terrible acts in the name of, oh, well, we're just protecting the natural rights, you know, we're protecting the natural rights of Syrians, they've been attacked by their government, or, or this or that. What, what would you say to that? I would say that it doesn't matter what idea you come up with, whether it's anarcho-capitalism or anything, if you have corrupt people uh, who don't understand philosophy, who don't understand right and wrong, who don't understand natural rights, you're going to have a bad time, okay? So uh, the, the solution, I mean, in other words, there isn't any system anybody can come up with that will be immune to confusions in philosophy, okay? So the only way that you can actually prevent that sort of thing from happening is to make sure that the population, on average, people generally understand the difference between a right and a crime. And if they don't understand that, then you're just going to have mayhem and it doesn't matter what you do. I think that's one of the, what I liked about your book, the, not the most, but one of the concepts I liked, how you, how you break it down eventually to this point. Like, look, there are two kinds of actions. There are rights and crimes. You know, people have a right to do everything. And that really, the way you describe that, I think, is a really good way for people, especially people that are even new to these ideas, to really simplify things and break it down. And you think about every action you're taking. Is this violating someone else's right? Then it's a crime. Is it not? Then it's your right to do it. Thanks. Yeah, I've had a number of people saying that that kind of turned the light on when they about how to pick between them or how to understand rights. So, thanks. Yeah, and I, I just want to get into one little kind of side issue that you and I have kind of discussed discussed before. And, uh, you know, I had Stefan Kinsella on last week, mostly discussing intellectual property and uh, his views against that entire concept. And I've read, you know, an interesting take that you've had. You know, you're obviously just as opposed to state IP, state copyright. Definitely you're opposed to patents, all that stuff. But you definitely have some views about how the free market on its own, which I do as well, could could have their own ways of kind of implementing things. And, again, it comes down to the philosophical basis of a society. So, you know, if we have a society where people really respect, say, you know, the writer of a book, the creator of, you know, a, a song, there are ways that companies, like a big company like Amazon, like the example we used last week, um, could kind of implement things to protect those works in a, in a free market, nonviolent way. Could you describe that just a little bit? Sure. Um, now, I'm not saying that people have to do this. My personal... Right, it's more of a, an exercise in how this could work. Yeah, and I think we need to be careful as libertarians to, to not take our preference and call that liberty. So this is an issue of, this is an issue of preference, so it's not an issue of, of liberty requires it. So, uh, now, yeah, it's Amazon's property, right? And it's, it's the, your internet service provider has property, and the, the, those companies could tell you, hey, we have this general copyright uh, system, uh, and it's very modest compared to this old, oppressive, tyrannical one that you used to have. But it's, it's all it says is you're not going to just copy this book. Uh, you're not going to copy any other book, or you won't get to use our service. Or if we find you doing this, we're going to kick you off our service for some period of time, or unless you pay for it, then we'll, then you can come back on. So it's a you know modest proposal. What, my, what I'm saying is that since it's Amazon's prerogative to sell you new other books or not, they don't have to sell you a book. And they can ask you to promise not to break any copyright anywhere, anybody's copyright anywhere, let alone their copyright. They can ask you that. And um, 
you know, your internet service provider could ask you that. Your local city-state could ask you that. And so you could set it up such that you have agreed and you have promised that you will not just copy, you know, just lazily copy instead of paying the $10 for the book. You could set it up so you have agreed that. Now, some people say, well, but how would you enforce it? You're not going to enforce it. And I don't care how you enforce it. I don't even care if, if it's enforced because I think if you have a good person, and I think most people in a free society would have to be good people, um, then, you know, they signed it, they agreed to it, they're just not going to break it. You don't need to enforce it. So enforcement is a red herring. It doesn't have to be enforced. It just has to be something that's promised. Now, if Amazon starts putting really tyrannical sorts of terms in their copyright and really just offends people, okay, people will not buy from Amazon. So uh, this sort of preference, I think it's a reasonable preference, I think. Uh, I think it would, I think it could emerge and I would, I would actually like it, you know, to be there. I don't want, I don't want the kind of preference that says, well, you can't write a fan fiction, you know, about Star Wars. I, I think that would be tyrannical and I would never want to see it. But just literal copying, uh, you could definitely implement on the free market. Now, somebody, some person says, oh, I really just don't like it and I don't want to do it. Well, they don't have to use Amazon and they don't have to use the internet and they can go, you know, build their own little free society that doesn't respect copyrights, and they can do everything they want all on their own. And there's nothing that's stopping them from doing this with this idea. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. And I think it, it comes down to, again, I mean, it's, it's going to come down to in a free society. And first of all, we're not going to have a free society unless people have that philosophical agreement already. So, I mean, with this, it just, just kind of comes down to the same thing. It's going to reflect the ideas of the populace and, and, and how people see things. And that's why, you know, a book like yours is important, especially because I think in the case of your book, you know, a lot of libertarians, um, especially more recent ones have come in through, you know, the Ron Paul movement and come things from, from kind of that perspective. And you come at it from, from a very different perspective. And I, and you reach a lot of the same conclusions. And I think it's really important that people question, not just their positions, but how they arrive at those positions, because how they arrive there, as we discussed, is going to lead to how they arrive at everything. So it's it's really important that we think about things, that we use reason, as you said, that we use logic, and um, that's how we arrive at our positions. So, like I said, I really recommend your book, Reason and Liberty, and can you just tell everybody out there what, what are the best ways to get your book, and, and where else can they find your writing and, and what, everything else you're doing? Well, the the website listed uh, com. You can find everything from there. Uh, you can find Reason and Liberty, and I have a book called Four Individual Rights you can find on uh, Amazon, uh, or you can go to LeanPub, and you can find Reason and Liberty. Great. Shane Whistler, thank you so much for joining me today on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hope to have you again on sometime soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Mark. Take care. You too. And we will be back in just a few moments, but first... A word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. 
Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. We are back here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. We just had a nice little talk with Shane Whistler, the author of Reason and Liberty. And again, as he said, you can find that on Amazon. You can find it at Lean Pub. And, you know, it's a book I highly recommend, not just because, you know, for even people like me who are totally in to liberty, 100% sold on natural rights, on libertarianism, this is a good book because it really makes you think and, and makes you really break things down to that intellectual basic level. Why do we think a certain way? What is the nature of man? What conclusions does that lead us to? And, you know, those conclusions... Luckily for us, happen to be that liberty is the best way to go. And not only that, it is the moral way. And that is what we push. That is what we want to talk about. That is why I started linesofliberty.com with several friends of mine. That is why I started doing this podcast, because we're just looking for new ways to reach out to people, to spread these ideas, to have the conversation. And, you know, I don't agree with Shane Whistler on every little viewpoint, um, you know, but that's that doesn't matter, you know. We need to sort these things out. That's why I wanted to ask him a few, you know, a few telling questions and a few things about scarcity. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying about scarcity. Uh, you know, to me, it's a, it's an economic concept. Things are obviously scarce. Uh, I mean, why do we do anything? Why do we make any actions in life? It's to obtain either a resource. Or an, an end, and you know, when I want to earn some money to buy some food or to to pay my rent, I mean, I'm attaining resources that I wouldn't otherwise have if I wasn't doing that, if I wasn't taking action to gain them. That's it's really the essence of economics, the Austrian school of economics, and you know, to me, that is a, a large foundation of why we have property rights because there has to be a way for people to peacefully divvy up these resources. Now, Shane Whistler comes to the same conclusions on property rights that I do. We just maybe started at a different point. But, you know, it's important for us to have these conversations, to have a consistent philosophical basis for what we're talking about. Thank you for joining us for our second edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. I hope you find what I'm doing interesting. If you made it this far into the show, I got to think you're find it at least a little interesting. But you know, hey, I'm new at this. I'm not I'm not a professional, uh, you know, podcaster. I'm not a professional I'm a professional something, but nothing to do with liberty. So, you know, I'm open to your feedback. I welcome your feedback. You can hit me directly. You can email me mark at lionsofliberty.com. That's Mark with a C, folks. Don't forget it. M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com. Please check out the website. If you haven't already, lionsofliberty.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. You can hit us up on Twitter. I'm always tweeting. I'm retweeting. I'm tweeting. I'm doing all that stuff. At Lions of Liberty. Uh, you can look us up on Google+. We're all over the place. Please just check out what we're doing, and please send us feedback. You know, I... Whether it's criticism, whether it's just popping in to say, hey, I listen to your podcast and that's it. If that's all you tell me, great. Because, you know, I look at the page views and probably too obsessed than I should be on the articles. You know, I look at how many hits the podcast is getting and I, there's numbers there. There's definitely a decent amount of people out there listening. But getting an email, I've gotten a few emails in the past week that just say, hey, you know, I found your podcast, I found your website, I like what you're doing. That stuff means a lot to me. So, you know, if for nothing else, do it for me. 
Let me know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear in the future, what you want us to talk about. If you have questions, I'll read them on the air. Send them my way, and you know we'll talk about it on the next episode or, or in a future episode. So you know we want to make this as interactive as possible. Find us on the social media. Check out the website. Check out our sponsors. Check out thenewamericanmedia.com. Brian Engelman's weekly radio show, Agree to Disagree, can be found there. Check out Place to Be Nation. Get a break from liberty. And check out a great pop culture website, to which I am also a contributor, placetobenation.com. Great spot if you like sports, TV, movies, anything at all. They talk about it there. And please check out the man who composed this fine tune I am playing you out with, Ron Branch. The tune is Save Me. Save us all from this tyrannical world we live in. Let's inject some liberty in it. Let's do it together. Check out his work at drawingforliberty.com. And remember, live long and live free.